Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm very excited to welcome Elizabeth De Los Pinos, CEO of Aura Biosciences. Thanks so much for joining us today, Elizabeth. Thank you, Rahul. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Elizabeth, to kick us off, walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yes. So I am a scientist. Uh, I started my career with a very classic PhD in molecular biology in my hometown in Barcelona. I did a postdoc in London and I was headed to become a professor at the University of Barcelona, or at least that's what my father wanted of me. But I had a dream of being really an entrepreneur and building novel companies and exciting drugs while I had no idea about business. So I decided that to do that, better do an MBA and work for some of the pharma companies that I had access in Europe. And so I did that. After a postdoc, I did an MBA, worked for Eli Lilly, and I had the opportunity at that time to launch one of their lung cancer drugs in Europe, which was a really fascinating experience from a bench side and a postdoc in London to launching a drug in multiple countries. And after that, I really decided that that was the time for me to start my own company and really take that dream of developing novel drugs and novel technologies. And that's what I did. I'm the founder of Aura. I started from scratch and I took it public last year. So it's been a beautiful journey and I'm happy to talk about it. Wonderful. Congratulations on taking a company that you founded public. Talk to us a little bit about the ocular oncology landscape and opportunities and challenges from your perspective. Yes. So our company, Aura, has a novel oncology platform. And one of the key decisions when you start a company and you have a drug is where to start, what is the key indication, and how can you successfully develop it. And so our key decision at the beginning was to initiate clinical development in the field of ocular oncology. And there were several reasons to do that. First of all, and foremost, was patients. There currently are no drugs approved for cancers in the eye. There are a group of rare diseases that have been left aside from drug development we thought that our technology could be ideal to provide benefit for these patients. That was the key reason. The second reason was that there was a unique market opportunity and we could not only clinically develop a proof of concept for our technology that then we could use for other cancers, but we would be able to very rapidly do a pivotal trial and potentially even commercialize because of how concentrated the ocular oncology market was. So for us, ocular oncology represented those key things that you always want to find, an unmet medical need that's very high and that your technology can really solve in a market opportunity to create that sustainability for a business proposal to investors. Great. And Elizabeth, talk to us about the founding story of Aura Biosciences and, and how it all came together in the early days. Initially, my fascination as a scientist was with viruses. 
And I always thought that there would be novel medicines based on either the molecular biology of viral infection or just viruses themselves. This was much earlier than the uh, beginnings of the oncolytic viruses that we have in the clinic today. So that was my initial kind of scientific inclination to study more and learn more about viruses. And when I decided to start the company, I had the interaction with one of the key scientists in Europe, Dr. Harald Zurhausen in Heidelberg. He had been nominated for the Nobel Prize for having discovered the human papillomavirus, and there were great vaccines that had been developed. But when I went and met him, he told me that there was a scientist at the NIH that had been working on the molecular biology of this virus to be used as therapeutics. And that was one of the uh, most exciting things for me because I thought, that's exactly right. That's what I wanted to do. Let's see what early science is there at NIH that I could start the company around. That's how the beginning came about. Really scientific connections from a very academic kind of initial really discovery to the early grounds upbringing of a startup company. And I'm sure you've reflected on this over the last decade plus or so. What do you think gave you the drive and confidence to found a biotech company? It's a very interesting question because I think that entrepreneurs are, sometimes you are an entrepreneur, you don't know if you are curious, if you're always asking more, if you're never satisfied with just publishing a paper, but really want to go to the next step. I think that that's really how you know that, you know, there's something there that you want to do than just be in academia. So to me, the fact that there was that early discovery and that I could see it through uh, gave me that self-confidence that it's not really grounded on anything else, but just self-assessment or maybe some people call it craziness. <laughs> yes. You got on the crazy startup train. <laughs> yes. And then you keep going, you know, you start and it's not as scary. It's not that difficult as it looks. It just takes a little bit of creativity. Yeah, well said. Well, Elizabeth, with that great background, talk to us now about the underlying technology at Aura Biosciences and where you are today. Yes. So our class of drugs are virus-like drug conjugates, and they are based on the human papillomavirus, as I explained, that was kind of the beginnings of the company. The human papillomavirus is a very unique family of viruses, and they are well known for being the cause of cervical cancer. And that's the reason why we vaccinate women and kids with the HPV vaccine. But what was discovered at the NIH is that this virus actually is very selective for a particular receptor that is expressed on only two biologic circumstances in cancer and in wound healing. So initially, this virus would only infect when there is a little wound, and that's how it starts the infection process and ultimately develops cervical cancer. But if you have a pre-existing cancer, the virus will not bind to any normal epithelial cell. It will just bind the cancer cells. And as such, you can use now only the outer shell of the virus, the proteins that form the capsid, they're called virus-like particles, and use them to conjugate drugs and take these drugs to the tumor. And there are kind of two advantages of this. First, it's very selective. 
like an antibody or an ADC. We use the antibody to bind the receptor on the cancer cell and deliver the cytotoxic payload. But because you're doing it with a virus, it's highly pre-immunogenic. So we have the twofold. We have the kind of activation of the immunogenicity of the tumor microenvironment and the cytotoxic delivery. So there's a very strong efficacy and a very strong T-cell activation after the administration of our therapy. Great. And Elizabeth, where are you now from an R&D and clinical trial perspective? So we have the first VDC in phase two development for the treatment of ocular cancer or melanoma that starts in the eye. This is a very early stage disease that we can treat initially with a local administration into the eye because these patients are not yet metastatic. And the results of the phase two, the first phase one, two were positive. We now have a phase two that's written out in the second half of the year. And the plan is to start a pivotal study before the end of the year. It's a very exciting time when you start having discussions with the FDA about a registration study. So it's one of those finish lines that you never think are going to happen. That's the goal for the year to really uh, get into late stage development with our first VTC. Wonderful. Sounds like a very exciting time at Aura after many, many years of, I'm sure, hard work. The drug development is not for the faint of heart, as you very well know. Yeah. And so, you know, talk to us about perhaps financing in the early days. And this is for, you know, our aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening of how you went about raising your initial round of financing. And then obviously what you did last year in terms of taking the company public and what that experience was like for you. Yeah. So my company was started perhaps in the not so traditional way. Our first round was angel founded. It was an angel round. And the reason was there were many, but I could engage with very good and savvy business angels that had pharmaceutical experience in Europe. They were mainly family offices because of my connections in Europe, but tell them that I was going to actually start the company in the US in Boston and further get investment from the more traditional venture capital. And that worked out very well. It depends on so many cases where I know of uh, entrepreneurs that uh, don't transition from angel investment to venture capital. And sometimes it's much easier to start right away with venture capital. But there are many ways. I always say that what makes a difference is the persistence, perseverance, and really the attachment to the story of the entrepreneur. So that's how I started. The initial round, I think of $15 million was all angels. And it was, you know, at the beginning, a very virtual company. But then with the first institutional round, we were able to really put more of a, a structured management team and get into the typical IND process and get us into the clinic. And of course, we had, you know, the uh, A, B and C rounds and then the uh, crossover and IPO. So all the way through. Great. And Elizabeth, what surprised you about the process of going public? So the preconception that we have, especially as a first-time CEO, and you know, I'm a woman, I have a family, I have kids, is that the world of biotech IPOs and being a public company CEO is mainly men-driven. And that there's no space if you are a woman and you have a family that you have to trade off and decide. And that's really not true. That was a preconception, perhaps was the case 20 years ago. But one of the greatest surprises was not only that my own team, I have a, you know, I think a very diverse team, 
with a lot of women and my CFO was a woman, but it's not only just our company. When we took the company public, we had bankers, the greatest bankers that were women, the greatest lawyers that were women, partners at Goodwin that were at the top level of the organization, you know, PR, IR, medical affairs, incredible. We counted like 20 women that were on the higher ranks of multiple organizations that all take place in a coordinated manner when you take a company public. And that was a surprise. It was a fantastic surprise. And that means that those women didn't have to leave their kids and just be a businesswoman and not a mother. In fact, one of the cases that I usually explain, which is really nice, we had one of the bankers that came back from maternity leave. And we had, as you know, in the roadshow and the IPOs, very long days and calls at very late at night. And we could hear the baby in the background. And it was fantastic. I don't know if it was the pandemic or not the pandemic, but it was the clear example of a very top performing banker being able to be a mother at the same time. So it was enlightening and a model for all of us. So that's a great example. We don't need to break barriers because there are none. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And Elizabeth, was it a deliberate decision to have your supporting team have that many women on it? Or was it just happenstance and it came together and it was a beautiful surprise for you? It was a surprise. We didn't do it on purpose. The banker, it was a change on the banking side because initially Mm -hmm. we were going to go with a, a, a male banker and they changed internally. So it was all coming together in a, in a unique way that we had not predicted or you know, requested. That was the nice surprise. Great. And if we look forward a little bit, Elizabeth, particularly across biotech, are there any perhaps hopes or aspirations that you have in terms of the growing role of women and balance that we're trying to achieve and any pointers you have for folks as they're building diverse teams? I always say that every time that you have the uh, responsibility of choosing in any circumstance in your life, you should think about diversity and not just gender diversity, diversity in all aspects, so that whenever we have the chance to take a decision, at least we think about it. And I think that just that will change a lot of things. And I have felt that a lot of people, very accomplished men that have been mentors of mine, always have that mindset. And I think that that's a really important thing. Just think about it. Just not act because you're, every entrepreneur wants to take decision fast. You want things to happen yesterday. But sometimes you just need to just wait and think, all right, is this just because there are more men available? Have I made the right choice? And I think that that will change a lot of things. Yeah, great. Now, Elizabeth, from honing in on that forward-looking perspective, As you think about just the business of biotech and how we operate as an industry, where do you hope that we go as an industry? And what are things that you'd like to see change over the next several decades? I hope that our industry focuses on innovation always and on patience always versus just financial interest or developing something that has lower risk. I think that the true reward of innovation is creating medicines that you know are transformational. And it takes for a different risk profile that larger companies may not be willing to take. And that's why our industry exists. So that's what I think you know should be the driver and the hope for change. I think that biotech is not for generic 
biotech is for the moonshots, for the drivers, for those who really want to develop novel drugs for diseases that have never been able to be attacked before. We talked a little bit about what a fully integrated biotech looks like before we started recording. Please share with us the vision you have for that as well. Yes, I think that as we thought about taking the company public, one of the key things, especially because we're focusing on a a group of rare diseases, was whether we were able to commercialize or we would be just developing a drug and then trying to find a partner. And I feel like there is a very important aspect of being self-sustainable. And if you try to build your company in a way that you think fully integrated, where you can do it and you can commercialize it, I actually think that that's the way that many of our companies and our industry will actually survive versus just being a part of the ecosystem. And a lot of entrepreneurs that they say, I'm just building the company to sell it at one point to pharma. Well, you know, that's not truly the purpose. The purpose should be to develop a new drug that gets to patients, that you can do it, that you can bring it to patients, that you can potentially change the entire, the innovation, not only at the beginning, but also innovate at the end and maybe challenge the way drugs are commercialized. That's a strong position that we have. And from the very beginning, one of my key mentors was Henry Tamir. And he always, every single choice he made for the drugs that he developed were with a commercial mindset, not just with an R&D mindset. And I think that that's what made Genzyde such a fantastic company. That's my hope. That's our goal. Yeah. And I'm curious, Elizabeth, since you've been building Aura, what are some of the changes that you've observed across the life sciences ecosystem, perhaps on the financing side or how companies are run? or corporate culture that are much needed changes that you hope prevail in the long term? Yes. Well, we've all been forced to do a dramatic change through the pandemic, right? Uh, Talk about adaptation. We never adapted faster and better given the only choice we had with this virus. So I think that in many ways, the new structure where we give a lot of flexibility to our employees, where we allow employees to work from home, and to interact only when needed, not force you know, the same routine and schedule to everyone has been amazing. And I think that that really builds a culture of tolerance, of flexibility, of trust, because you have so much more trust. You don't have to see the face of someone to know that they're working. And it's a new model. It's a model that we love, that we embrace that it's constantly changing and evolving based on you know, how we live and how we work. But I certainly think that that has been fantastic for all of us to be able to keep working through the pandemic and improve, adapt and thrive. That's what we do best. Yeah. And Elizabeth, as you were a first time founder and CEO, if you look back at, you know, perhaps when you started Aura, what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide that younger self of yours? The one thing is that at the beginning, I had a lot of fear. I feared many things. I feared, am I going to be able to do this? What if I don't get the next round of capital? What if that experiment doesn't work out? And, you know, those were sometimes fears that I was not able to get answers to. 
but running the company and myself now can talk to that self early on and say, you'll be able to solve any of those problems. Trust yourself, trust your brain and uh, make sure that you enjoy life versus living a life of fear. And so that's um, an entrepreneur. Usually they say we're fearless. That's not true. Fear is present in anyone. It's our attitude towards fear. That is the greatest learning. And I hope that some of the listeners that are very, very smart scientists will decide to start companies and overcome that initial fear. Yeah. Wonderful advice, Elizabeth. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today of perseverance and resilience. And congratulations on all the success you've already had at Aura Biosciences and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Aura Biosciences. Thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Rahul, for a great conversation. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.